I think the good recruiters know how to balance that with doing exactly what's in the best interest of the candidate too. Because if you don't, one, it's the right thing to do. Two, I think you build your rep. If you want to be a recruiter for the long term, you build your reputation on both sides by doing the right thing by both sides and getting referrals from candidates for other candidates that they know. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes, where we lift the curtain on the hiring process and talk to hiring practitioners, be that recruiters or hiring managers. This week, we are with Keith Schneider, who I've had the longtime pleasure of knowing. We've been friends online and have had really great conversations. We've worked together in different capacities, and he is going to talk about the difference between agency recruiting and in-house recruiting. He spent the bulk of his career at a small boutique recruiting firm and is now an in-house recruiter at a large, amazing tech company. And so he talks about what are the differences from a career pathing perspective? What are the motivations of an agency recruiter versus an in-house recruiter? How they think about who they're serving and their client and departments versus customers. And it really gives you a, a lens into how you might interact with an agency recruiter or out of house recruiter versus an in-house recruiter. And oftentimes how companies even think about the process of whether the position is assigned to an in-house recruiter or out of house recruiter. It's incredibly insightful. I learned a ton talking to Keith about it and you're gonna learn a lot of how the recruiting profession works in this episode. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This week we are with Keith Schneider, who I've had the pleasure of interacting with on Twitter. We got to do some work together. We've sort of become online friends for a while and he's always shared really, really good stuff. But I think it's better for people to introduce themselves. So Keith, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Dave. So yeah, we've met through the world of Twitter, which I think is an amazing thing that has brought us into the real world now. I am over a decade now in recruiting. My first nine years of experience were on the agency side. Last year and that change, almost year and a half now, are in-house. So I like to think I have a, not a even mix, but an interesting mix of agency and in-house recruiting experience to date. Awesome. I'm excited to dive into that topic. And so given the theme here, hiring behind the scenes, we really like to get into the nitty gritty of what some of these things mean. So at a high level, what does it mean to be agency? Again, like as detailed as possible, even like how you guys get paid. You know, there's all this like folklore out there around like, oh, they only get paid when they do this or that. Like, let's give people the nuts and bolts and then walk us through sort of how in-house recruiting is different. I think understanding how people operate and what their incentives are is a good thing to understand as a candidate, because if you could align yourself with the incentives of the person who's potentially helping you, I think you're, you have a little bit of a leg up. So agents, agency recruiters are, I think the part of it that a lot of people know is they work with many companies, not just one company. They're typically either at smaller boutique agencies, which are super specialized or larger agencies, which are really good at a lot of at doing a lot of things. They're really good at business development. They're building a lot large client base, but do a little bit of everything versus that super specialized areas, typically how I've seen it. I myself was at a really small boutique specialized firm for majority of my of my agency career. We focused on working with tech companies across just two or three areas, mostly marketing, product management, 
customer success and sales kind of combined in one, all for startups, all the way to publicly traded companies on that side of things. So I think understanding that they're working with a bunch of different companies who are typically bringing them in under two reasons. One, either they've tried the search themselves and are having a really difficult time identifying the right talent for that search, or two, they're super busy, don't have the bandwidth to do it themselves within their internal teams or their however they typically go about hiring and are adding augmented efforts from an external agency at that point. The agencies come in, they typically have, the experienced agencies typically have like a pretty set structure. Hey, this is how we do things. This is the value of what we bring. This is the type of process we want to run obviously in conjunction with what that team typically does for their interview process. And we char- they charge a fee for the hire that's usually attached to the base salary in some cases or attached to the total compensation of that hire for year one. On total comp yeah. for startups, it doesn't include equity, right? It's usually like total cash comp, right? Usually total cash. So excluding RSUs, excluding equity, correct. And then for like executive level searches, they'll do like a flat, a flat large fee typically. And is that like some percentage of comp or more just because the numbers get so big, they cap it? Some will just do a a minimum because it's like, hey, here's the level of service you're getting. That entry point could be a very large number kind of thing. Others will do like X percentage up to the total cash comp. My understanding is that there's two kind of primary models, but you know better than I do, but there's retained and contingent yeah is is there more to it and can you explain those yeah i think it's evolved over the years but what i was just highlighting is more on the retained side so they're typically not coming in at your associate level positions manager even really senior manager or director in a lot of cases doing more of that like executive leadership and up type positions those are those big one either one time plus kind of fees a lot of what you'll see from a lot of firms is contingency where it's just upon hire. What I've seen a lot more of over the last few years is a mix of kind of a container slash partial retainer, if you will, where it's usually going for a very specialized search, like search like director plus, and maybe a small percentage up front to help, and then the rest upon hire. Got it. And if they don't make the hire, they don't get paid the rest. Correct. So contingency, you only get paid if you make the hire. So zero dollars. And, you know, I'm sure there's different flavors of risk management and stuff like that. But at a high level, that's and that's where you'll see a lot of folks that just will go just go and like spray the world with job offers because ultimately, like they, they just need to get volume and they don't get paid unless they, this, the hire happens. It's unfortunately a, vo- a volume play in that side of things. And I think that's where a lot of the frustration comes in the reputation for recruiters as well. Because if they're just trying to juggle all these balls at once, some things end up unfortunately falling through the cracks in those scenarios. And then retained is a percentage, but you're, you're yeah, there's some level of exclusivity typically, right? You're like, hey, you're going with us. You're not going to go get other recruiters. And there's kind of a, a commitment yeah. on the company's part to working with this firm to fill this hire. Correct. So they're usually like fairly embedded for that role in the process with the team, what they're exactly looking for, weekly checkpoints with the hiring manager, all that kind of stuff. Not to say, and just a caveat, they can also be on contingency. It's just a lot more of a time commitment to be doing that without any commitment up front from the team 
but it can be done. Right. So like when you, yeah, I was the sort of customer of contingency recruiting, sorry, retained at WeWork. And then I've done some with Teal less so. And you like the level of service is different, right? Like the, just like the amount of research the firm is able to do because they're getting a commitment, right? At the end of the day, it's like a risk management. If it's like, you know, I know I'm going to have some amount of the money guaranteed. I can now source, I can put together packets, I can do briefs. There's just so much, there's much higher quality service, but you're expected to pay for it. Oh yeah. I mean, I was built, I've built out market maps for companies, built out presentations on like what candidates are out there on individual like profiles and things like that. So there's a whole other level at that point. And also fee structures are different, right? Contingency, and every firm can do it, whatever, but they're like in the 20s of percents I've seen like typically and then retained depending on the function could be like 30, almost like 100%. <laughs> yeah. yeah, typically like 30, 33% though as like a general guideline. That's like more standard. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I was at WeWork that we were, it was some position, it was like some very white glove, very like specialized tech valley recruiting firm and I don't know if it was like for like data science or something, but this was like a, sort of a little bit of the peak, but they were commanding like 70, 80% of the salary. It's high. It's high. Yeah. But um, hey, I guess if they're getting the perfect person, the perfect person for the company, there's no complaints, but it is that is very high for, for what I've heard or I typically see. Yeah, it can happen. Just like to give people a sense of like how some of these things. And I think it's important that, you know, when you're working with an external recruiter, sometimes called headhunters, agencies, it they get paid upon hire. Like their motivation is to make the hire happen, right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, the, I think the good recruiters know how to balance that with doing exactly what's in the best interest of the candidate too. Because if you don't, one, it's the right thing to do. Two, I think you build your, rep if you want to be a recruiter for the long term, you build your reputation on both sides by doing the right thing by both sides and getting referrals from candidates for other candidates that they know, mm. and then for companies, for other companies that they know as well. So th there's a few people I know that I feel like they have a level of confidence in leaving a job because they've been placed by a recruiter, an agency, and they've got very good relationships and they just know that at any point they can sort of call this person and be like, hey, look, I'm kind of thinking about something different. Do you know? And it's a win-win because they can, like, they know. So that there is very much, even though agency recruiters don't serve the candidate, there's a lot of value in maintaining these relationships. Yeah, especially I think the, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying before, like, if you're, if you have trusted recruiters that you work with on the agency side that are specialized even more so because they're not just going to have one-off positions typically. So if they're the recruiter that works on customer success, if they're the recruiter that works on product management, they might be working with two, three, four companies at any given time who might need someone of your skill set. So they can sort of bring you to multiple companies. Yeah. And how often do, like, I also know that when I've worked with, with agencies, they have like a I'm going to date myself here, Rolodex, a database of contacts. <laughs> and like they, it's not like they start from scratch, right? Like part of them being in, in the field and having this like focus and this specialty is they've got like a database of people that they know are looking and that they could potentially like tap for opportunities rather than like a cold start. Again, I think it goes back to how specialized they are. Mm -hmm. If someone's touching a bunch of different areas, 
as much as they probably say that they have that ready to go, it's really hard to, unless you're super concentrated in your efforts. I think, again, for any company listening or hiring manager listening, I think that value of like, hey, who do you have or who do you know? If anyone tells you they have 10 people waiting, they might, they probably don't kind of thing. But <laughs> it's like, if they're constantly working with candidates in this space, they might have, hey, this person wasn't good for this company because they were focused on consumer finance and we needed somebody who's doing something completely different. But I think they could be great for your company and they might already have two, three, four people. And I think really where it helps is that like that time to shortlist is really mm-hmm. sped up in that situation. Now, switching to the corporate side or in-house or I don't know what the right sort of shorthand for that is. Yeah. How how does that start to be different? Because you've you've now made the switch. So interestingly for me, not as much because we've st- we've gone specialized in the areas we recruit for. I mm-hmm. think if you're with a smaller team where someone's doing a little bit of everything, it goes back to some of those problems I was talking about before. I think work when you have like identified swim lanes within a corporate recruiting environment, it helps build some of those like I've already know I already know X Y and Z candidate that I spoke with five months ago who wasn't ready, but they said get back to me in the summer, or someone who wasn't exactly a fit for this business line, but is a better fit for this business line. So I think a lot of those advantages of what the advantages of, of being an agency recruiter with specialized with specialized uh, specializations comes into play in this kind of setup. So it's actually pretty uh, similar in that sense. Is is another area of difference the sort of ratio of outbound to inbound candidates or active passive, I guess is kind of like the recruiter language when you're working on an agency versus corporate? Yeah. I mean, there's very few, I say this like admittingly being from that side, the other side, there's very few agencies who have like a name brand where people are just applying. It's largely, largely outbound. Don't get me wrong. I th- there's so much outbound being in-house too, but especially if you have a brand name as a company that you work for when you're in-house, you start to get more inbound, you start to get more referrals. So it becomes more like, I've seen more of like 60, 40, 70, 30, depending on what types of roles versus like almost 90, 95% outbound when on the agency side. Right, and that's kind of what you're hiring an agency for, right? Is like, we need to fill the funnel. We posted the job and it's like, no one's just gonna like magically apply and so like we want we don't have the bandwidth, the time and energy to like proactively contact people and see that might be a good fit. So that's what you hire a firm for. I always thought it was funny when I was earlier in recruiting, like companies would tell like, oh, we'll post this on our job boards. I was like, who cares? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't matter. Like nobody's applying to XYZ 10 person recruiting firms job board, because if they were, they'd probably apply directly to that company for the position. So the advantage of being the agency is that you're going out and I know how to identify, scout, and recruit and convince people to join these companies. That's the advantage. So let's talk a little bit about that because I think there's a lot of sort of lore on like how to stand out to recruiters and how to get found. Let's stay on the agency side because they're, you know, they are out there doing outbound almost exclusively. And then we can talk about how, how it's different on the corporate side. But like, what was your process? So you get an assignment. I think you worked mostly like with marketing and go-to-market kind of positions. What was your process? I don't shy about it. I know people have their 
unhappiness with LinkedIn. You hear stuff all the time bashing it. I use it. I used it all the time. Literally, it was my go. It was my go to. It was what I used all the time because we weren't posting jobs. I probably didn't post a job for the last like five, six years. I was on the agency side. When you say post a job, you mean like on your corporate job board because the company had it on their website or not even. Like for the last three years, I don't even think we posted on our com- on our company page of like of your client this specific on LinkedIn of like never the cli- specific client or anything like that. Just the probably a few of the ongoing roles that we had. So that's interesting. So the job not being posted that that also I feel like happens is another reason to use recruiters sometimes. Like there are jobs that you do, you. I don't know the legality of this. I don't want to get anyone in trouble. I, I think it also changes very much depending on like the scale of company. You know, we just did an, an episode with Kristen Fife and we went super deep on OFCCP. So like, let, let's kind of ignore that for a second that we don't have to comply with that. And that's obviously different on the internal versus agency side as well. Oh, for sure. Super different there. So on the agency side, you could be looking for jobs that were not on the company's career page, like looking for candidates. Yeah, so I would reach out about the specific about the specific job, reach out to those candidates on LinkedIn, and then share who the share who the company was, share information, want to get them on a call to learn more about them, see if it could be a good fit from there. That's like a super super boiled down version. So, what would be reasons that the company doesn't post it publicly, As but in, you're still actively hiring for it? Because we're not we're not the company itself on the agency side. So realistically, like, why are they, they they would be, sorry, they would be, we as the agency would not be. Gosh, as an agency, you have a job board of like open positions and you don't post it there. Like if I went to like, we didn't really even have a job board. Got it. But say you were working with Airbnb and if the person went to like airbnb.com slash careers, they would see the position there that you were also actively trying to help fill. Correct. So the, all those companies were still posting those positions, getting inbound traffic from their applications. They would bring us in externally. We wouldn't have it posted, but we would have a, a sizzle message typically to reach out to them about a secondary, like once you talk to them or if they needed to see more over email before jumping on a call, sending more, sending more there, and then talking through like their whole story, what they really wanted to do next, if this is a match in that first call as well. So if a person applied directly on the career page before you ever talk to them, does that negate the agency's ability to collect the commission on that position? Nuanced, but typically. Right, because it wasn't the first touch. Like the, the agency needs to source the person, right? That's like part of the value. Yeah, most behind the scenes a little bit further, most companies have like terms in their when did the person last apply? When was your last touch point? with the person because if it was a year ago 15 months ago even sometimes seven months ago but they never actually like got that person interested and engaged there's like with relation with good relationships with companies and and recruiting teams there's like hey you got us this person you built this person into our you got this person into our company where there would still be a successful uh hire in that case for the agency so now switching over to the corporate side because there's firms there's companies that use both yeah how does that division of labor start to shake out? Like, okay, this position we've given to firm XYZ, this one we're trying to fill ourselves internally. I think it depends on volume. There's probably a lot of different, like, I've only been in, inside, in-house at one place, so I can't speak for like how every company divides it up. 
just from what I spoke, a lot of what I talk about is more from my experience on the agency side and like how companies thought about it, what they shared with me when working with them for a while. Just a lot more of like, hey, this is where we have bandwidth or this is where our recruiters are really good and have relationships and know how to build things out. This is where we have a little bit of a gap. That's how I've typically seen it. Sometimes also just like really good recruiters do the job really well, get unlucky sometimes as well. They'll bring in a, they'll bring in a firm afterwards just say, hey, we need, we need another set of eyes on this. We want to bring in another firm who might have different relationships with candidates than we have right now kind of thing. I've seen a little bit of everything. And once internal teams get a little bigger, they do start to like break up by function, right? Because you like, just is like you have a network. So you you're talking to marketers, you're talking to engineers. What do you see as like the not a, a mega company, right? Because they can get like super specific. But what do you see as like the initial distribution once a company can have like a full on recruiting team? How many functions they're covering? Kind of thing. Yeah, or like is it, this person's usually like sales and marketing, or they'll do like engineering and product management. Like again, every company can slice it and dice it differently. But yeah, like what do you see as like the first pass of segmentation? The first one is purely business and engineering. Typically, mm-hmm. that just like as much of an even split there. From there, I've typically seen like then they'll go from sales and customer success will be split out on the business side. From the rest of from the rest of GNA and corporate functions, and when you say business, it's basically like when you first said it's like everything that's not engineering. <laughs> yes, okay. I realize I probably should explain that. Literally everything that's not engineering will go on that side, and then like realistically, as teams get a little bit bigger and could support more, like you'll see product and product design. I at least I've seen like separated from an engineering recruiter and somebody just doing those two. Then maybe a data science and technical solutions recruiter will be added from there. And then on the business side, the non-tech side of things, like a GNA person who covers everything from accounting, finance, and legal to facilities management kind of thing. Is there a level at which like recruiting, right? There's obviously, there's like campus recruiting that are people are trying to get like fresh grads and stuff. But is there like levels where recruiting makes sense? Like, look, more early positions, we just get online applications. Once it starts to get a little more senior, we have to do more outbound. Maybe a better form of the question is, does the ratio of like inbound to outbound applicants change with seniority of positions? I think it has to, naturally. I think because in the, f- the funnel of how many people are actually doing that work gets less and less the high, like the higher up you go in seniority. Now, who has that skill set and applies is sometimes a different question. But I think like the more niche of a role you go or the higher seniority you go, you typically get less applications at that point. Yeah. Again, not always, but that's kind of how I've seen it. Yeah, because just the, the criteria become more specific, right? So you're just like sort of fishing in a smaller pond and then online applications, you got to hope the person's job searching. So it just becomes that you got to like go out and actively pursue versus like wait for that person to find you. Yeah. Like if you're looking for someone, I I see it more actually on niche roles than on versus seniority. So like if it's a super technical product or just a super niche product that not a lot of people have, you get, you get way less applications at that point versus like, a director of marketing or a director of customer success, you're probably still going to get a lot, 
Now, is that person a director of marketing or a director of customer success, like to the same qualifications as what the company thinks it, thinks it is? That's a different conversation, but you'll still get a good amount of applications for those types of roles. That's a great point. This is something that honestly was a little bit of a rude awakening for me with Teal. I was like, oh, we'll just post the, the job and we'll get applicants. And, you know, some things will like post it and gets like 200 applicants. And, you know, I have a product designer position that I've gotten like 10, you know, it's been live for like three months. And like, I don't have that network. I don't have like a lot of people that follow me are not that, you know, not designers. I haven't built like a brand for that. And so I have to market that like, and like, and I have to do outbound as much, I would love to get hundreds of applicants for this position, but just not that cool. <laughs> Those are tough. Um, I was doing senior product designers in the middle of late 2020, early 2021. So competitive. I'm not surprised to hear that. I don't know what it's like now. I haven't recruited for those roles in two plus years, but like you just were, I'm not surprised that no one was seeing applications. I had spoken to people at that time who were like, I turned on my open to opportunities and had eight interviews within a week <laughs> at that point. And that was for like product designers. It was just crazy. So to talk about uh, this fun topic, we've talked about it before, but I think it's always good to reinforce it. So in-house or out of house, when you're doing outbound, you are looking for these signals that the person's interested, right? Because we don't want to pester people that are uninterested. Also, it's just like, it's inefficient. If the person's not interested, I don't want to waste the time on the meeting. So like very tactically, what were the things you were doing and maybe still are doing to like find candidates? I keep it super simple. Again, LinkedIn, my first go-to is searching by titles. And plugging in. And we're talking about LinkedIn Recruiter, right? Not yeah. regular consumer LinkedIn. Correct. So LinkedIn Recruiter is a lot more advanced search functionality. I don't use all of it, admittedly, but like narrowing down a bunch of key areas, like what locations or if it's fully remote, but usually like for product marketing manager, senior product marketing manager, associate product marketing manager, as like redundant and boring as that sounds, literally every version of the title that could potentially have someone who's working in that or their past title was that. So you start with title. Some people start with skills and keywords. You generally start with title, which means you want that person to have had that title before. And maybe that's a function of like, I'm typically either on the agency side or in-house, typically working on roles that are like experienced career level roles versus someone coming straight out of college who probably wouldn't have that. Right. Obviously that title experience, but yeah. That's like my first, my first go-to and like for super technical roles, I'll be adding in those into skills or key into skills or keywords typically. So like computer science, engineering, something that could signal that they had that even as like an undergrad degree, plus the title in combination. How do you deal with the variations on title? So like I was, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm using LinkedIn recruiter right now to you know, functionally, I want someone who works on the design of our website, right? Like that's, that's what the activities are. I want them to focus on the design of the landing pages, but that's like, that can be visual designer, that can be brand designer, that can be creative director, that can be, you know, the, the permutations of that title are honestly like 20, but I know functionally what I want them to do. And it'd be great if they knew Webflow. <laughs> you know? So like, how do you, which hopefully we, we can like sort of flip into advice for candidates, but like, what do you do to find, because on the candidate side, 
on their career history on LinkedIn, they've got all these various versions of those titles, but you kind of also clearly know what you want. And the company has chosen some version of the title. Hopefully it's not obscure and they're trying to be cute, but like, how do you navigate the various versions of what a title could be when you're searching? So design ones are probably a little more tricky. And this is not to speak in general, in a general term, but I think like the portfolios tend to speak really volumes Mm -hmm. for the design folks. And there's typically less description in their LinkedIn profiles from what, (laughs) from what I've seen. (laughs) So let's see. Another one I was just looking for, because maybe it's a better one was um, this editorial lead, right? This is a person who is going to be, you know, just posted this job today. Today is August 7th when we're recording. And, you know, again, like the function is managing the editorial calendar, assigning briefs. But I, I just started to do something new on our JDs. This is the first job I do it with, where I have a section that is alternative titles. And I list all the variations because I'm hoping that'll help us show up. Like I'm almost like doing SEO for LinkedIn so that we get found. But there was like a signing editor editorial lead, managing editor, all sorts of different titles. So like, if you're looking for these people that could have had like this wide range of 20 titles on their LinkedIn, like what do you do to make sure that all those people are in the net that you cast? That's part of what I do first is I will build an entire list of every title that this person could have had, whether it's present or past. And you could actually then on LinkedIn recruiter search by current or past as title. So it basically is an or function for the whole for the whole Boolean search. So any of them should come up, uh, even if they haven't used that title in three titles since then. And is there like something that you've seen candidates do to get creative, to get like multiple variations of titles onto their LinkedIn? I think if anything, like I've seen it probably in the description or if they don't love the version of their title of like, this is what their company gave them, quote unquote. And that's what they have is listed as like, I was at Google and this is my title. But like people get creative with their headlines and the headlines are very searchable on LinkedIn. So that's an area to be like, all right, I know that the title I want to be going after is this, but it's very closely aligned with what you do anyways. I think that's a good that's a good time to use it in there or in the the body of the description underneath the role itself. Either of those will come up in a search. So I think either can work. I believe, I could be wrong. I believe headline is comes up faster though, from an SEO standpoint. It feels like it's got more weight when I'm looking on LinkedIn Recruit. That's why I tell people use the headline. It's a place to put in the title, but it's also like, I, I've seen a lot of people get really worked up about the accuracy of like, that's like, that's not what was on my job description. It's like, it's okay. Like the recruiter, So it's almost like put what they, because some companies get funky and it's like really not helpful. So what I tell people is like, put it in parentheses. Like what is the more like normative understanding of that title? I think of it as like, here's sell yourself. Like don't lie, don't stretch a truth, but what is accurate and sells yourself, use that to your advantage. What about seniority? Like, I feel like that's a tricky one that people get really anxious about, right? So if like, If you are managing managers, you're a director. That's kind of like the HR definition of a director. But your company never gave you that title. They called you a manager and you were managing managers. What kind of leeway do people get from you? All recruiters are different in terms of 
like highlighting, getting that word director into their LinkedIn so that they can f- be found for director because you're probably searching for director. So I'm very much on the tell the truth and then tell your story mm. and it'll work out. I don't know if that's going to be the universal advice on that. I think use the, like don't change the t- effective title. But what I would personally recommend in that situation is use your actual title, but then write first thing underneath your title in your bot in the body of the description, say manager of managers. I managed three managers who had six direct reports for a total team of 18. That's the first thing underneath it. Mm -hmm. So everyone sees it and there's no question. That's my personal best take on that. I love to tell the truth, tell your story, but because these are keywords, my guess would be if you were looking for a director, like you're operating under the definition of director. And this person was like functionally a director, but they don't have director anywhere on their LinkedIn. Like, is there a way that doesn't look like suspicious for them to get the word director on there? I would put it in the open to work section titles and then put all the different versions of the that title with director in the positions you're open to. This way you'd still show up in those searches. Yep, that's a great call. The open to work. And so when I use LinkedIn Recruiter, that's one of the first filters I do. It's like, okay, 1,000 possible candidates, 500 are open to work. That's the first button I click so I can be like, all right, these people are game to talk. Same here. It shortens the list and then I go back the second time of the people who aren't open and go through who else looks like could be a great fit as well. So that's what people need to understand. It's like, we need to fill these positions. Every day that it goes unfilled is not helping us. So any signal you can give us that you can help speed up the process, we're going to take it. Now, I think it gets a little conflated with the green banner, non-green banner. I think it goes without question that if you are currently employed, you should not put the green banner. It's just like (laughs) we're not in a world where that's the case. And then I do think, like we talk about this a lot with Laura Gassman, there are people that will judge you for the green banner. You know, is that number one? Is it 100? Is it 1,000? I don't know. They exist. I don't want to pretend like they don't. But- I think the positives far outweigh the negatives. Yeah. And you could do the open to those opportunities without doing the green banner. Right. So the people who have LinkedIn Recruiter will still see that you've selected that private open to work. And that's where like the list you're talking about in terms of coming up on that shorter list. That doesn't mean you need to have a green banner around your profile picture still, but you still effectively get the same thing done. One thing I'm noticing as I'm searching is there's people who just recently landed a job and they haven't turned it off. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I'm like doing like, look, I'm not going to reach out to this person. They just started this job a month ago. I can't imagine that they still want it on. But I don't know, any any thoughts there on folks that forget to turn it off? Or is like was like a happy accident sometimes? Maybe a new opportunity comes <laughs> along. Yeah, I think that's what I think that's what it is. I think as like a rough guideline, I've typically used like if it's still on after three months of joining, mm. I think mentally, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, I'm like, oh, maybe they're they're not as happy in this new move and they still have it. I think in the first month, I'm usually like, oh, it's probably it's probably just by accident kind of thing. Yeah, that's been sort of my sense. But if you feel like you're getting pestered by recruiters, first thing is make sure you're, you're open to work's not turned on. <laughs> Yeah, probably if you like to lay low for a little bit, turn it up, turn it off at that point. So what would you say have been the big differences now that you've been in house for a year and a half? Like what what calls out to you as as different from having been at house? Business development. 
or lack thereof. I'm not having to do it. Yeah. On the agency side, you're always, you're making relationships on two sides all the time. I'd say even potentially more of the time is spent on the relationship side, working with companies versus the candidate side at that point. Now it's a lot more all candidate driven. And then Mm. how do I set up my company for scalable processes side of things? That's where like a little bit of the time gets replaced at that point. And I think I'd love to just say it explicitly. In-house recruiters don't generally, I feel like majority of the times, make a commission. Yeah, I don't want to speak in 100% absolutes. There's probably could be bonuses tied to it, but correct. I haven't heard of it. I haven't heard of any that actually make a commission on the internet. Yeah, I've never seen it. Yeah. It is not common. So when people say like in-house recruiters only, you know, like they don't, like they are salaried. They, maybe there's a bonus, you know? Yeah, and I want people to be happy. These are my future coworkers. I'm going to work closely with them, sit near them at the, like at the office. You want them to come in super happy with the right expectations. And no, there's no commission tied to it as well. Do you feel now when you do that first interview, was there a difference? Like, are you, do you feel like your like sensors for hiring are different now that you're in house than when you were out of house? I think I was asking different questions because always on the agency side, I was thinking, if not this, what else could they, like, what other company could they be a better fit for? Mm. Where, like, where else do the puzzle pieces fit? Where, now I'm asking really like, is this person going to be set up for long-term happiness and success with this role, with this team here? Um, so it's a different set of qu- similar because really uh, I like to find out like what what makes a person really excited about the work they go- get to do every day. What's like the next 18 months look like for them in their head of like personal growth and opportunity. And are they going to be a really good fit here long-term in terms of that mindset? How does your dynamic with your client, I'm doing air quotes for people listening, because right on there, you kind of have a client even when you're an in-house recruiter. That's the hiring manager that you're partnering with. As an out-of-house, like a relationship can end. Obviously, you can lose your job in-house, but I think like the assumption is we're going to be here. We're in this together. We're partnering to grow this team. Where agencies are kind of like per contract. How has this adjusted your thinking about your relationship with your again client? I think the consultative nature stays the same, whether you're a good in-house or out-of-house recruiter. I think you nailed it in terms of like, everyone knows your both sides are in it for the long haul when you're on the in-house side. So I think there is a like pre-bought in nature where you don't have to sell yourself as much to the now I'm with you, I'm air quoting as well. <laughs> On the in-house client of like, hey, we need to figure this out together. We need to get this right. Maybe proactively, we set an extra meeting knowing this is get like an extra weekly cadence of a meeting, knowing this is going to be a difficult search to review candidates, to review conversations that we're having. I think it speeds up that process because you're like already there working with them. They know you're, there's no question about your best interest. What's your best interest also at that point? Right, now I would imagine for any recruiter listening, like, your allocation of time is different, right? You talked about needing to do BD or sales, right? Because ideally you have like ongoing relationships, but not guaranteed. I would imagine like out-of-house recruiters are the first to go because they're expensive. It's like, hey, if we, especially if you've got in-house recruiters. So like the way you can invest your time as a recruiter is different, right? Yeah. I mean, 
I like to think I got better at it and <laughs> built more relationships as time went on. I luckily and was fortunate enough to have to get to like scale it back a little bit in terms of how much business development I was doing. Probably seven years in, I committed to posting a lot on Twitter and LinkedIn so that it was more of a, the difference of the push and pull. Inbound versus outbound. Exactly. So like sharing what I'm doing and like what challenges I'm seeing or even like memes about recruiting and like stuff that people are facing on a day-to-day basis of just like, all right, this person's doing it every day. They understand the issues, the trials, the tribulations. And a lot of times companies reached out to me at, towards the end because they knew who I was. They knew that I've been in the space for a really long time, that I recruited for these types of roles. I wasn't posting like, hey, who needs my help? It was more so like somebody would reach out and say, hey, I have this specific role. Like, do you know anybody or can you help us? Kind of thing. Right. That's how I met you. Right? Yeah. I DM'd you on Twitter because I'd been following your content. We had been like sort of going back on stuff. And I was like, hey, you can you help me fill this position? It happened a lot over those two years, but that's lucky. I don't think a lot are doing the work that way or like setting up the relationships that way, but that's how I think you can actually scale it on the agency side. So you have to spend less time doing business development. It's warmer introductions, and then you get to spend more time on actually recruiting at that point. In terms of career pathing for a recruiter, a lot of your career progression, this is conjecture on my part, so check me here, but it feels like if you're on the agency side, like your ability to make money, or like grow your career is probably going to lean in like you're going to have to also start to do more of that BD where if you really want to like practice the craft of recruiting and getting to focus a lot of your time on that more like in-house might be like head of talent might be the career progression. Like, is that fair to say, or could it shake out differently? Yeah. I, I think it could shake out very differently depending on the strategy of the recruitment firm that you work for. Mm. So if you work for a really big firm, As you go up, you get more responsible for business development and leading a team that's doing either business development or recruiting. A lot of the big firms have it split where they basically have one team doing the sales, one team doing the recruiting, and they work together in the middle. So that's how you kind of build your career on that side. But again, if you're at a a smaller place that's specialized, you're kind of in control of how much BD or how much you're bringing in because you're still probably doing all the business development. That's what they call like a full an, uh, recruiter doing a full desk at all times. Got That means doing sales and recruiting. Correct. So I was doing that the entire time. God, like a, like a consulting firm. Like they, you, at a certain point, you st- it starts to bifurcate like on pure sales and pure recruiting or like management. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. And then in-house, you could start to do some management, but when does that happen? Or are you doing recruiting for like actual hands-on recruiting for a while? I mean, I am. So I'm actual hands-on recruiting. I think it's, there's also depending on what company builds in terms of track. So they could build you a, a long-term individual contributor track where you have no intention to go into management, but typically like the complexity of the roles, the, the seniority of the roles will get more, will grow as you grow. And then you kind of become like the mentor to other recruiters, but you're not effectively managing anybody. Or you go from like associate recruiter to recruiter to senior recruiter to management and lead kind of a small team and then grow from there as the other side. I feel like, you know, a lot of the job search advice out there almost like assumes every company has a recruiter, but actually I think a lot of companies don't. (laughs) It's kind of a luxury, like once you're a little bit bigger, like what have you seen 
as like headcount or like some business metric when companies actually start to have recruiters versus it being like the founders or the hiring managers directly doing the recruiting? Yeah, I think like first 20 employees is always founders doing those first hires. I think if a company's raised a good amount of money in in like early funding, they might bring on a recruiter early or like some talent lead, some version of that title in that first like 20 to 30 employees. And then by like 40 to 50, you kind of already have to have some start of some of some infrastructure or team in place. Otherwise, like even with even with like a normal amount of attrition, it becomes really hard to recruit on a regular basis. That makes sense. So if you're yeah, as people are like looking for companies to work at, there is like this. I think 20 feels like the right. It's like anything under 20, they probably don't have a recruiter. So you might be speaking to hiring managers directly, like CTOs, CEOs, product managers, like look for those senior positions because those folks have to do their job and find candidates. And I don't think those companies are also just getting the influx of candidates that people think like, you know, I think we all want to work at these like big name brands, but I still think there's a lot of really great companies at that like sub 20 threshold that are doing great and are like really struggling to find candidates. Yeah. I mean, companies with recruiting teams struggle to find candidates because they don't have time to do all the, all the recruiting and sourcing. So imagine somebody who's building a t- building their own product simultaneously has to do this as a, a secondary or tertiary job. Really, really hard to commit time on a regular basis. I would assume they're like, all right, I'm going to block off a half hour on this day and I'm going to source five candidates. I'm going to try and find 10. Like that's like the kind of effort. So if you can find, if you see a job with a company that's 20, 25 people and you're not like, hey, I don't see a recruiter at that company. I think that's a perfect time to reach out to somebody on the leadership team or who you think the hiring manager is for that role. I've heard you say this in other in other uh, conversations on your podcast, like be super specific in the ask and do the work for them versus like, I, I know you have a couple openings. Um, I think especially even more so with the hiring manager, if you're going to reach out, be really clear in the ask. And then I think you you could go a long way in those in those spots. Yeah, I think it's it's like all job search advice. It's the, the context is really important. And I think a lot of it is sort of made in this kind of like very stereotypical, like large company with recruiters that have some like fancy ATS. It's like, that's actually just really like the Fortune 100. And there's so many companies that are not that. Yeah, I think like it's really hard to give general. I almost never speak in absolutes when it comes to recruiting because like one you're definitely going to get some backlash on that. But two, like, it's probably wrong in a lot of in a lot of situations. I like to think if you could find stories that say, like, here's what I did, here's what I fixed, here's what I built. And if you want to, like, then apply to a company that is looking for someone who's done that story, that's how you could, like, write your path of, like, I want to work here, but okay, where did those people come from? Maybe I can't get that job today. But, like, where did they hire three people from or what skill sets mm-hmm. did they hire from? And you, it might be two steps away. I'd say that's like the closest thing of absolute I talk to in terms of career advice, because I think that applies to a wide range of companies, but otherwise, otherwise I avoid it. <laughs> I try and stay away. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, a lot of it is fear mongering. So that's what we try to get at here. Well, I think this was awesome. I think that we just shed a lot of light on you know, this kind of agency side, how to think about it. We haven't covered it on the show before. So this was super awesome. This was great, Keith. How can 
folks following? Are you are you posting on X as actively as you were on Twitter? How, how can folks find you? I've said I admittedly have said Twitter like twelve times this past week, so I've I've been corrected. I'm posting less, but I'm still on there at Schneider KJ on Twitter, and then obviously on linked on LinkedIn as well at the same name. Awesome. So we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. This was super great. I learned a ton. Like I, you know, there's a lot of the nuance around the agency side that I didn't know and sort of seeing the the comparisons was, was awesome. So thanks so much for joining, Keith. Thanks for having me, Dave. Awesome to catch up. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. We are here to help job seekers. The point of this show is to give you the behind the scenes look at the hiring practices of companies and to debunk a lot of the myths and fear mongering that's out there. So if you like the show, please subscribe. Would love for you to write me on LinkedIn or comment on one of my posts if you'd like to be a guest. We're really looking for practitioners that are in the hiring role, whether it be a hiring manager or a recruiter. We want to give people that inside view to what it looks like to be hired and to understand the inside view of how companies operate. So please let me know. And if you're job searching, check out Teal, tealhq.com. We are here to help you land a job you love. All right, thanks. And we'll catch you on the next one.